love. Because what he's trying to do is to move us away from what perhaps we could perceive as aberrant behaviour, certainly behaviour which doesn't create any happiness for us, and move us into behaviour which will open us into the world of others and being with others in a much more wholesome way. Now, in order to understand that movement, to understand how that can possibly take place, in, one, in a sense, one always has to understand the problem. And I touched on and alluded to quite a lot of it last night, but I want to kind of echo a little bit of it and then move it slightly forward in talking about the way that the Buddha perceives this ethics of love. Most of you will know, particularly those who have been around Buddhist circles and been to Gaia House before, most of you will know that the Buddha's starting point really is something which is usually translated as the Four Noble Truths. Well, I must admit, it's a lousy translation. <laughs> Absolutely dreadful. Out of all possibly worst translations you could have chose, Four Noble Truths is about the worst of them. Um, the actual, really, title of it should be translated The Four Ennobling Truths, or The Truths of the Noble Ones. And I hope when you hear that, it has a completely different connotation to it than noble truths. What is supposed to occur through the inquiry into these four so-called truths is an ennobling process. In other words, you become ennobled by the very inquiry into these four conditions. The conditions quite simply are dukkha, which I spoke about last night, a cause to it, a cessation to it, and a path to its cessation. However, in a way, that the whole of the path is contained in understanding that, those four ennobling truths. And if one really penetrated into it, I think you would see the whole in the sense of the Buddhist path kind of fall out in front of you. Um, one Tibetan teacher I used to study with in India actually used to say to me, the only one you really got to understand is the cause and everything else really falls into place after that. If you understand what the cause of Dukkha is, then you'll understand everything else that follows from it. And much time in Buddhist literature has gone into, is spent in going into delineating what that cause is and how we get ourselves into the mess that we do. And really, um, using a quote of the Buddha's, which he asks a very simple quote, and it's a very simple quote, he asks something very simply, he says, who's going to untangle the tangle? You know, I, was, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, who's going to untangle the, untang- untangle the tangle, I get this picture of a ball of wool, you know, all knotted up, <laughs> um, not even knowing where the end is to begin. Yeah. Um, and really what he's really saying, actually, there's nobody going to untangle the tangle, as I was saying last night, other than yourselves. The Buddha is not going to do it, and nobody else is going to do it for you. You are the only person that can do it in engaging in this. So you have to really, in a sense, understand deeply, deeply what the problem is. Um, and I, hint, I, I tend to think that perhaps most people's motivation for even engaging in meditation, um, what we call meditation anyway, is probably through the feeling that something is not quite right in their lives. Um, can be from fairly minor to fairly serious um, but there's often this feeling, I think, that things are not quite right. That phrase I used last night, which is, the world isn't delivering all the goodies that you want out of it. It's not delivering the things that you need and require and all of that stuff to you. And in a sense, that's the beginning place. The Buddha's basically saying, you've got a problem. <laughs> and, and do you recognize that you've got a problem? Um, and the problem is, in a sense, that we're dukkha-producing machines. You know, we're just engaging in producing this dukkha for ourselves and, as I said, quite liberally spreading it around um, to all of those we come into interrelationship with. So it's very important because it's not just about ourselves. Um, and this is absolutely fundamental. It's not about ourselves. I mean, one of the old... Criticisms of Buddhist practice and meditational practice, even if you don't want to call it Buddhist, was it was um, slightly self-indulgent. Um, it was slightly cut off from the world. Um, often it was levelled at it that it was selfish practice. Well, this is far from it, because in a sense, in engaging in this work and engaging in this process, you're in a sense dealing with the world. You're coming into action engagement with the world. 
it's, it's almost an accident of our... Well, it's not actually an accident. It's actually part of the logic of our grammars in the, in the languages that we use in the West that we have these kind of synonyms and antonyms. And when we say that, you know, the Buddhist practice, in a sense, is trying to deal with something like attachment, then we hear automatically in our heads, perhaps, that we should be detached and when I get this picture of somebody being detached and use a quote of James Joyce, I get somebody who's standing on the outside of life looking at its feast, you know, um, just looking in at what's going on while everybody else is enjoying themselves because I'm so detached. Um, and that's not what it's about at all. What we're really talking about in this whole practice, and this is why the practice of kindness and love and compassion, there's another practice in there as well, empathy, is actually so fundamental, is it? Because it leads us into correct engagement. So the opposite of of attachment is not detachment, it's correct engagement, wholesome engagement with others and with the world. Uh, In a way that doesn't and isn't productive of that dukkha which is so comprehensive for us, it's so ubiquitous, it's there in almost all dimensions of life. I kind of joked about it a little bit last night and said, you know, we can produce Dukkha at a drop of a hat. You know, out of the most minor thing, it can become a great big irritation. You know, the most minor facets of our lives. And it's worth sometimes just reflecting in a day, as you go through a day, just how we automatically fall into this. Oh, it's not quite right. It's not the exact colour I want. It's not this, it's not that. And how we do this almost automatically, unthinkingly. Um, and as I say, producing something out of nothing. Producing misery out of something which is often entirely ephemeral. Um, and completely you know, you know, lacking in any substance whatsoever. So that is the problem. And the problem is, as I say, ubiquitous. It's there for all of us in greater and lesser senses. I think it strikes us particularly in the Western world, and probably very different in the time of the Buddha, it strikes us very much in the Western world because actually when we look in the Western world and around at, you know, the kind of things that people have, people have so much, and yet there's still a crisis of things like depression and abuse with addictions and all sorts of things, which actually, in a sense, bespeak of a fundamental unhappiness, uh, which is permeated throughout our culture. Let's not even speak of the East. I mean, often people in Eastern countries and developing countries are still so busy on trying to just get enough food to eat, they haven't got the time for the indulgences that we often engage in. But when we look at our own culture, we're into a profoundly depressed culture, often. You, know, um, you see this, in a sense, in what I would call the nihilistic reaction to it. Um, parting ourselves to death amusing ourselves to death. You know, that, that kind of reactivity that we have to a, a fundamental sense of vacuity in life. And so it's what I call an extreme reaction that we often see, not only in others, and really this is kind of not just pointing the finger at others, it's also pointing the finger at ourselves in the ways that we try to escape that fundamental feeling of, as I say, vacuity, of things not being quite right. It's that little tremor, as I was saying last night, that runs through life um, and that we pick up on. Sometimes we try to avoid it, we try to push it away, we try to stomp it down, but you can't keep a good repression down. It always comes up in some way. (laughs) It arises, and it often comes out, actually, and being serious about that, it often comes out in far more destructive forms. Um, when something is repressed. And I think what we see is, in Western culture, the evasion of many basic and existential facets of life which haven't been dealt with is coming out in this almost pathological way. Um, And it's creating pathologies of the modern self. So in a sense, that's the problem. And the Buddha is really diagnosing that as he's saying, you have a problem. But you know, just like going through a medical practitioner, it's often modelled on that way and often spoken of in the text that the Buddha is the supreme doctor, in a way. And one can see that because what he's actually saying is, you've got a problem, here's your problem. 
just as you go to a physician and you don't be expected to be told what's right about you, well, this is actually seeing what's wrong with you so that you can deal with it. As I say, often that's undiagnosed by ourselves apart from the fact you're not feeling quite well um, in life. You don't feel settled, you don't feel content, you don't feel happy. All these words that we often use as synonyms for contentment and peace and lack of friction in our lives. We don't feel it. And so, in a sense, what the Buddha is really trying to do is lay it out. But he's not just laying it out in a negative sense. He's not just saying, oh, you've got a problem to get on with it. What he's actually saying is you've got a problem and there's a cause to it. And that is really what is so important, is the actual diagnosis of a cause to it. What actually is fueling this problem that we have. Now, the proximate cause, the most immediate cause that the Buddha identifies as as having is something which in Pali is called tanha, slightly different in Sanskrit, but it actually means and translated as craving, um, desire. Um, Actually, the word even has, I think, a more dynamic meaning in its original form, its etymological sense, because it means an unquenchable thirst. It actually means a thirst which we can't quench no matter what we do. And that is what's fueling our problem. It was that syndrome that I was indicating to you last night of always looking for something to make you happy, to something to make you content, to externalise the problems. Have you noticed, I mean, the problems are always other people, it's never ourselves. (laughs) And they're they're just to irritate us, really. (laughs) I joke about it, but in a sense I'm trying to make serious points through kind of being humorous about it, because that's actually often our relationship, um, that we don't look to, in a sense, the problem as being self-generated. Yeah. And that is really what the Buddha is throwing his back on, seeing that this problem is self-generated, therefore is capable of self-healing. Yeah. And what he's offering is op- often a path to healing. If one treats the Four Ennobling Truths, as diagnostic in its first stages, then what he's talking about is then a regimen to health, a way to healing ourselves, to becoming whole, less fragmented, less distorted and destructive to ourselves and to others. So we get the cause, approximate cause being, as I say, cravings, unquenchable thirst. That we're always, if you like, desiring something external to try and create that peace and contentment which we lack, and we often know that we lack. And it becomes automatic, that attempt to externalise and to solve it through external things. As I've often said many times in this room, there's probably tapes floating around somewhere (laughs) with me saying it before, but I mean, in a way, it's not that we're bad people, it's just that we're not very skillful at trying to create what we actually fundamentally do desire, which is some kind of peace in this world. I always hesitate using the word happiness, although happiness is a word which is used because it can be very flabby. It can be kind of very meaningless and slightly sentimental. But I think we all know what we mean by this deep sense of repose and peace and relaxation and contentment in this world. Now, some of you might equate that with happiness, and I wouldn't kind of object to that in any way. But I think this is what we fundamentally aim at, the lack of friction in life. of actually feeling as if we can relax into it without all of the fundamental psychological stuff coming in that so easily comes into our lives and enters into our lives and makes it actually hell sometimes. The resentments, the jealousies, the, the feeling of resistance about the simple things that we have to engage in, and we do and the repetitive things that we also have to engage in. We're often so deeply, deeply resistant to just getting on with life. Um, And sometimes you even notice in your meditation practice, when you resist it, when you resist going through the process of just sitting, it can become torture. It really can. Um, I actually had this in my meditation group in Sharpa. I don't know if some, some of you were here when she said it. I said, I kind of, we did the meditation, which was about 50 minutes or so, and I said, are there any questions? And this lady just said to me, why is it such torture <laughs> sitting here for that length of time? And 
in many ways, if you resist the process, it can become that. So in a sense, it's also insightful. Even if you're really feeling, you know, you're going through that process, it can be an insight into the ways that we actually resist the process. Instead of relaxing into it, we resist it. So we have that proximate cause. The Buddha traces it even further back. He traces it down to a fundamental sense of ignorance, um, which has a kind of Sanskrit Pali term, which, in a sense, the word ignorance doesn't do it justice. Um, It doesn't do justice of what's actually meant by this term, unless we hear the word ignorance in its fundamental sense, again, etymologically in English, which means to overlook, to ignore something. It doesn't mean deprivation of knowledge. Actually, you could hear all of the Buddhist path laid out in startling clarity, not by me, by the way, (laughs) but you might hear it laid out in startling clarity by somebody, the Buddha, perhaps, and still not get it. Because you have to do the work. Um, I think there's also, particularly in the Western world, again, I think there's almost a mythology that if we surround ourselves with enough Buddhist books by osmosis, suddenly it will be transformed. (laughs) They'll kind of seep into it. Um, Again, you can read all those books, even if you do have them, and it might not affect any really deep fundamental change because somehow we're really overlooking the process. What's really entailed by this is not just not knowing, but actually deeply not really wanting to know. Um, Most of us, I think, find it problematic to change our lives, particularly as it generally means if you're going to live a path somehow in accordance with what I call the meditative way, the spiritual way, perhaps the Buddhist way, and I do say perhaps, then it probably entails you giving up something to do it. You know, even to be here for this week has entailed you giving up something to simply be here. You know, to affect really deep fundamental change um, that it often means giving up a lot more. Now, the giving up might be sometimes simply mental, coming into a different relationship with the things around you. But sometimes it might actually mean giving up something that you do and enjoy. Now that's not a message that most of us want to hear in the 21st century. Uh, We're deeply enmeshed and protective of the things that we enjoy. So some of what the Buddha has to say is unpalatable, I'm afraid to say. It's unpalatable to our ears in this century. Um, because it does involve things like very un-PC word renunciation, giving things up, or certainly coming into a different relationship with the things that we possess and own and the relationships we are engaged in. So ignorance is one of the fundamental driving forces. In fact, it is the fundamental driving force behind everything else that arises. You know, all of our negative emotions, negative psychology, is traceable actually to three fundamental unwholesome roots. One of them is ignorance, the other is aversion, and the other is greed. I look around the world, and I'm not just being hypercritical, and I see a profusion of all three. So much so I generally label them the unholy trinity. Because they're actually really rampant in not only other psychologies, but our psychologies. Day to day, again, you can observe how the wanting something will arise, the aversion to something will arise. And actually, because of this fundamental state of delusion or ignorance, sometimes we just simply don't know. Um, We're groping our way around the world in a pretty deluded state, as if we've been dropped into a foreign place and not given a map. Um, and I don't know, that's always used to strike me, particularly sometimes when, even when I was younger, of actually that's how it felt to be in life, that somebody hadn't quite given me the key uh, to find my way around. Yeah. So I kept bumping into things and getting lost up alleys and things like that because there wasn't yeah, a good roadmap uh, to find your way around. 
So out of those first two ennobling truths, and probably all of you know this and have heard it, but it's, I think, worth, uh, kind of worth hearing it again. Out of those two noble truths, we have a diagnosis. We have the problem that the Buddha delineates that we have, and we have a cause to it. Now, in a way, if you think about it, it's the good news, as soon as you know there's a cause. Because if there is a cause to something, then alter the cause and the effect will change. Yeah. So the effect, in a sense, is dukkha. If there is a cause to it, and we can identify the causes to dukkha, what gives us this feeling of all those things I talked about, dissatisfaction and unsatisfactoriness and anxiety and depression and irritation, and you could have this huge litany of terms. If we actually begin to discern the causes and start to work on the causes, then perhaps Dukkha will give us up. You know, give up on us. You know, the mind won't be caught in these patterns of conditioning which we, as I say, drop into so easily. Now, in a way, the good news is contained in the second of the ennobling truths, but the third is even better, because it says there is a cure. It actually speaks in terms of cessation here, and the term is dukkha niroda, the cessation of dukkha. The word niroda which some of you might be able to picture. I haven't got a board to write it on. I usually get terribly twitchy when I don't have a board to write things on. Um, the word niroda, its literal meaning, is basically to cease leaking all your rubbish onto the world. <laughs> it actually has that direct connotation in the Pali. It means to cease leaking. <clears throat> yeah. And actually it tells you a lot about the kind of society that the Buddha grew up in because it was about a society of paddy fields and everything else, and the way you did that to stop something leaking was you shored it up against it leaking out into the other fields. And what we're trying to do is stop that leakage, stop ourselves from leaking this rubbish onto the world all the time. Um, And there's quite a bit of it (laughs) that the Buddha talks about. Um, I mean, if I'm being slightly cruder about it, it's to stop actually releasing our effluent onto the world. Because it's the kind of rubbish and crap that we pour out continuously onto the world so that's the good news the cessation that we can actually stop that we can actually be free of it and then finally we have a regimen to health we have a regimen to health which is laid out in terms of three things basically morality sila a way to do it bhavana or samadhi which is actually the path of meditation and then finally panya which is insight, understanding, not wisdom. It's insight or understanding. And those three things are delineated in terms of what's the ennobling eightfold path. And so we get a regimen to health arising out of that. So the four ennobling truths really give us, in a sense, the map of the terrain. And then it begins to be a great unpacking of that map of what the problem is. You can't cure a problem half-cocked. You really have to understand the problem quite thoroughly to really, in a sense, eradicate it, to bring it up, to get rid of it. And so many people, when they hear the teachings, and particularly early translators and people who first came across Buddhism, thought it was terribly pessimistic because they spent this long time looking actually at what the problem is seeing what the problems are, seeing what the causes are. But of course, that is all diagnostic work to help us identify what's going on so that we can let it go or bring about the conditions for it to let us go. Because in a way, that's what's happened. We're enthralled to something which has captured us. Um, Particular ways of thinking, particular ways of being in the world, particular propensities to behave in certain forms. They are sedimentations, they are fossilizations, they are the unconscious. There are all kinds of words that you could use to describe this. Um, if there is such a thing as unconscious facets in Buddhist practice, well, the whole purpose of the practice is to make them conscious. Yeah. It's not to dwell with the sense of the unconscious driving us, being, you know, as if something's pushing us from behind. 
The whole point about the practice is to bring and raise to consciousness unconscious facets about our life, no matter how unpleasant they might be. But this is not simply a means of beating ourselves up. This is not a means of self-laceration, of telling ourselves what horrible people we are. Nothing about that whatsoever. It's just to be realistic where we are. We can only start from where we are, not from some idealised position. So hence the reason why kindness is absolutely fundamental to this. In other words, we still have to be kind to ourselves, even in our delusory states, with all the foibles of our behaviours, and the ways that we present ourselves in the world, and are in the world, because that's where we are. And if we can begin to accept our own proclivities, ways of behaviour, our own sources of delusion and ignorance and ill will and that which we exhibit, then perhaps if we look at those with the eye of kindness and love, then perhaps we can extend it to others. And in a sense, this is what is so fundamental about the practice of metta, is in a sense that this charity starts at home. And so when we begin the meditations tomorrow, we will start with a day on developing metta towards ourselves. Not out of a sense of self-indulgence, self-engrandisement or anything like that, but just coming into a fundamental, more friendly state with ourselves. As I mentioned briefly last night, many Eastern teachers were thoroughly surprised when they first arrived in the West and started having Western students and just finding out the depth um, of how alienated most people were from themselves. Now, there's a great history for that. It's um, often to do with the religious cultures which we grew up in in the West and the kind of concepts that they have. One facet, and perhaps this might come up in discussion at some point, I'm not going to make a big deal about it tonight, but one thing that's actually fundamentally lacking in any Asian language is a word for guilt. They have no words for guilt. And in fact, when Christian missionaries arrived in places like India and Sri Lanka and some of the other cultures into which obviously colonialism arrived complete with their missionaries, they had to invent words to make people feel guilty. And so, actually, that is part of our legacy. We have it, whether we like it or not. It's there in our psyches, and it often manifests as self-dislike, you know, not liking ourselves very much. And so, metta, even just at this level, just beginning to show some friendly concern towards ourselves, and say, not self-indulgence, not just indulging ourselves and creating the self in a kind of inflated image, but actually just developing this fundamental friendliness to our good side and our flaws, knowing that we are fallible at this stage. In a way, that becomes the launch pad for the rest of the path, if you can really accept yourself, if you can really accept yourself in this mix that we are. A lot of unwholesome states, but actually wholesome states as well. The Buddha is not, in a sense, attempting to reinvent the wheel. What he's doing is pointing out, actually, that although we engage in a lot of unwholesome behaviour, there are wholesome facets there too. What they need, and again, it shows you the kind of agrarian economies that he grew up in. He's talking about nurturing them, watering them, feeding them. You know, feeding the wholesome state so that they flower and blossom and grow in our lives. And part of that message that he's giving across is this ethics of love, trying to get us to see, as he puts it in the Dhammapada, that hatred is never overcome by hatred. Hatred is only overcome by love. And he said that is an ancient law. He's saying that two and a half thousand years ago, that it's an ancient law, you know. How much more ancient is it now? Um, there's a wonderful poster I remember seeing, I think it was the time of the Gulf War or something, it says, an eye for an eye only creates blindness. Yeah. In other words, that's what that kind of hatred and aggression creates. Um, with ourselves, when we get involved in aversion states, and states of ill will and states of anger, we become blind. 
and we desire often to hurt the other. And in hurting the other, not only do we hurt the other, but we hurt ourselves as well, quite fundamentally. It's a psychological wounding that we go through. Most of us have lesions. I'm not going to use, I'm going to use a word that's actually not used in Buddhism, but I think, I think people will know what it means. We have lesions or wounds in the soul here, you know, within ourselves, which need deep healing um, because they create much of the aberrant behavior that I referred to right at the start of this talk this evening that we engage in. But what the Buddha is also saying is we have the kindness we don't exhibit it all the time, and we might only exhibit it to a few family and friends. Sometimes, such as things like the tsunami, there might be an outpouring of not just sentimentalism, but genuine concern and compassion for others, or at the times of disasters. Sometimes there is empathy as well for others. Empathy at another's suffering. Or how about this, even more difficult, empathy at another's joy. And again, I'm putting it slightly jokily, but it's a real, it's a really difficult thing to do to engage in this appreciative joy at another's joy, whilst you might not be experiencing that whatsoever in your own life. Yeah. So these are really, really important. In fact, this triumvirate of kindness, empathy, and compassion are really what the path is about in terms, I think, of offering a liberation for everyone. The Buddha himself says about the first metta, and I'm going to read the metta sutta to you, probably to finish off on this evening, because this will start in the morning again. Because in the metta sutta, he's saying there is no better way to live than with kindness. And this is why I call it an ethics of love that the Buddha is engaged in. No matter how ancient the texts are that you read, when you read them in the Pali Canon, and they're very stylized and they're very ancient and they're very archaic in the way they're putting across, you see and get a glimpse of the Buddha's skillfulness and the ways that he deals with people. You know, sometimes he's harder on some than he is on others. But he moulds and adapts what he has to say to the susceptibility of the listener here. Yeah. And often he's just pointing out very simple things to people because he talks to a vast spectrum of Indian society it'd be like talking from everybody from the down and out on the street in western society to the top business manager in a multinational company you know because he's talking to people such as almost the untouchable classes such as somebody called Chunda who's a blacksmith most vilified of Indian society because they dealt in making iron weapons and therefore were outcasts of the society he even takes his last meal from a blacksmith, you know, the, most, the, the lowest of Indian society. Next to that is the leather worker. To the kings, the rajas of Indian society at that period. So he's covering the whole spectrum, and each time he's adapting his message in a kind way to the listeners. So he moves, as one of the Chinese texts says... He moves through the world with bliss-bestowing hands. I thought, whenever I first heard that, I thought, what a wonderful image. You know, because actually it's a challenge to us to see, can we move through the world with bliss-bestowing hands rather than leaving a wake of, you know, kind of wreckage in the, in the path that we travel through life? Because that's often what it appears to be. And again, be aware, I'm throwing out generalizations. So you know, sometimes they apply, sometimes they don't. But often that's the way we move through life, just creating the kind of debris behind us. Um, and, and it's that movement, that movement with kindness and love that the Buddha indicates, which I think is open to everybody. The path of insight, and particularly people often get the impression that Buddhism is a very intellectual thing to be engaged in. It isn't. <laughs> Buddha's message is very simple. You know, be kind, be compassionate. Out of that kindness and compassion might be generated insight. The problem is living it. You know? The message gets complicated 
by the intellectual tradition that arises and therefore it becomes seemingly elitist and for certainly only certain people. But that is not how the Buddha himself proclaims it. He proclaims it as something very simple, teaching one or two things. He says dukkha and it's overcoming or dukkha and it's overcoming two things. That's all he teaches. Fundamental to that message, really fundamental to that message, is the notion of this triumvirate, of metta, of empathy, and compassion. So much so that the two, two of them, metta, compassion, you know, loving kindness, or just kindness, or friendliness, it can be translated in quite a number of ways. And compassion are considered to be what's called brahmaviharas in Pali and Sanskrit. And to anybody living in Indian society at that period, if you said to somebody, this was a Brahma Vihara, it means a dwelling place of Brahma. Brahma was the supreme Indian god. Anybody who said who'd reached a Brahma Vihara had been liberated. So it was a kind of very skillful way of talking to his society, of referring to it, because he's using a different language, but using their terminology to, to, to actually discuss it with. So anybody in Indian society, if you said you were practicing a Brahma Vihara, you were on the road to liberation, if you were actually developing it. Now, what we are being liberated from, let us get it quite clear. I know I started off here. We're being liberated from Dukkha and our propensities to keep on creating Dukkha. Traditionally, that sense of Dukkha is considered to be cyclical. It gives birth or perhaps rebirth is a better phrase, it is rebirth to, or as to as being reborn in something which is known as sangsara. Sangsara has in a sense two meanings. It has the meaning of being, going through the whole process of birth, death, rebirth, birth, death, rebirth, birth, death, rebirth, for an infinite number of times, unless one actually deals with it. It also means to engage in cyclical behaviour. circular behaviour. Really, um, some of you might have seen these, the depictions that they have in Tibetan temples, which is called the Baba Chakra, which actually is the wheel of becoming. And it's represented as a circle. It's really the ultimate vicious circle that one can be caught up in. Um, Everything within it is, in a sense, entrapped. The Buddha is usually depicted as outside of this, showing that is only that's the only place where freedom lies. Everything or most things within the wheel of sangsara is entrapment. And again, perhaps I'm saying perhaps because it might not gel with your experience. And remember what I said last night: it's really your experience that counts. But perhaps that accounts for some of our feelings in ordinary life when we somehow feel entrapped by situations, entrapped by behaviour, where we seem to be going round and round in circles. You know, so there's actually a far more fundamental psychological meaning to this idea of sangsara than just the idea of birth, death, rebirth in a cosmological sense. It's this idea of this feeling of entrapment and of actually being caught within conditions which keep giving rise to similar circumstances, to propensities to behave, as I've indicated already, to behave in certain ways which give rise to similar results. Perhaps it counts, sometimes in our experiences, I don't know whether you've had it, I certainly have, for the sense of deja vu that we get it, you know, that we get from time to time. You know, when you say to yourself something like, I was making this mistake ten years ago, <laughs> why am I still doing it now? You know, and actually the time span can even become longer than that. <laughs> you, know, you keep on making the same mistake, because in fact the causes and conditions which give rise to that kind of error haven't been dealt with. Fundamentally, the causes and conditions, the ones I've already mentioned to you, are ignorance, greed, and aversion. Those are the fundamental conditions. Because all of the negative psychological traits that we have, of course, which are far more subtle than those really powerful ones, although in a way these are much more deeply embedded, far more subtle manifestations of them that are there manifest in our our psychology day to day, sometimes minute to minute. Just one funny story. Some of you may have heard this before, but it's worth saying, because 
it was an error I fell into when I was very young, when I was first studying in Tibetan monastery. And it was um, about the wheel of life, which is this depiction that they have. And traditionally, um, in Buddhism, they have this idea that there are six places that you can be reborn into upon death, dependent on your karma. Now, all of them are within sangsara. So there's no way out. You're still bobbing up and down, in a sense, in the ocean of sangsara. You're just finding better places or worse places within it. And so right at the pinnacle of sangsaric, um, the pinnacle of sangsara, perhaps I should say, is a realm which is known as the God realm, which is called the Devas. And and, uh, these are usually described as gods that live incredibly long lives, have everything they could possibly want, all the beautiful clothes and food and everything else. And um, it's only when they die, um, because they have to take rebirth in a lower realm, because if you've got to the top, the only way is down. You know, so they've got to the top, they've got to the pinnacle of sangsara. So they're on their way down, and I often joke about this, but there's a little bit in one of the texts says, when they're about to die and be reborn in a lower realm, they start to smell, and none of the other gods want to talk to them. <laughs> and I thought, what a wonderful metaphor. <laughs> so that's one realm. There's another realm which is aspiring to be godlike. Um, they're known, known as asuras. Um, in Sanskrit, there's a word surya, which means the sun. Asura means without the sun. So the sun literally doesn't shine on them. <laughs> no matter how hard they try, the sun doesn't bless them. Yeah. Then there is the animal realm, which is the only realm most of us will recognize immediately. Um, the realm which in Buddhist terms is of persecution, blind instinct, all sorts of things. Um, but it's pretty basic. Then there's the realm of endless desire, which is designated by what's called Praetors or hungry ghosts. I love the images of hungry ghosts. Hungry ghosts have these pinhole mouths and little scrawny necks and great big fat stomachs and they have an infinite appetite. And so no matter what they eat causes them suffering. <laughs> Again, it's a very strong image. Then there is a hell realm, believe it or not. Even in Buddhism they have a hell realm. Um, but here nobody judges you in the hell realm. It's not like you know, God judging those who are in hell, say in Dante's Inferno or something like that. Um, here, I think very, again, psychologically acute, the god of death called Yama holds up a mirror and you judge yourself on what you see in the mirror. Um, and so whatever punishments are meted out are meted out by yourself. And then finally, out of the six realms, there is a human realm. And the human realm is, is the realm of the possibility, not the actuality, the possibility for the development of insight, understanding and compassion. And so, I don't know if it jumped into your minds, but it certainly did when I was very young. I was about 18 when I first came across this. And I immediately said, ah, I know people like that. <laughs> I know people. And I said, is that what they are? Kind of psychological you know, characterizations of people. People are kind of arrogant and think they have everything, know everything, have these kind of egos. And there's at the other end of the spectrum, those who are kind of in the depths of hell, going through depressions and things like that, and those driven by desire and those who are just simply animal instincts you know, for food and procreation and all this sort of stuff. And I kind of said this, and went for a bit more detail actually, to the particular teacher I was with, and I, he said to me, with a kind of really disgusted look on his face, he said, said no, that's a picture of you on one day. <laughs> because... In a sense, that is exactly what it is. They're meant to be psychological states that we go through. But, and this is a serious point, this is what really brought it home to me at the time. Because he said, he posed it as a question. He said, hmm, if that's you in a day, how often are you human? How often are you dwelling in the human realm with its possibility of of insight and compassion? A lot of the time we're just driven by the blind instinct, the automatic beating ourselves up the trying to aspire to something that, you know, materially perhaps, thinking that we're okay, <laughs> things like that, and we bob up and down continuously, sometimes in a day. You know, I think probably for most of us in a day, actually, going through all of those things. Now, 
that is entrapment because we just bob, as I say, up and down, up and down. In the text, they talk about the limitless ocean of samsara, which you just keep actually going round and round and round, swimming around in the limitless ocean of samsara. And so the fundamental impetus is you want to be free of that, to bring an end to that going round in circles, to a freedom from the dukkha that actually is isn't the attendant state that arises automatically in this movement through these sangsaric states. Because even if you have the euphoria of the deva realm, you know, and you think you've got everything for two seconds, and you go, oops. <laughs> you know, because as soon as you realise it, it's probably on the way down. <laughs> you know, it's on the way out. And so all of those states are tinged with dukkha. All of those states are tinged dukkha. They all have their unpleasantness, they all have their unsatisfactory side to it. And really what the Buddha is saying is, do you want to be free of that? Do you want to make a movement into stepping outside of simply being at the play of the causes and conditions which just channel themselves automatically? If we fall back into, I'm going to use a really basic word, habit. Because so much of what we do is simply habitual. And so really what we are talking about is freedom from habit. Freedom from addiction. Whatever what our addiction is. Be that addicted to sensual pleasures, be that addicted to this, that or the other. It doesn't matter. It's freedom from addiction is what we're really talking about. Now that state, that freedom from addiction, freedom from actually ultimately being driven by greed, hatred and delusion, and the addictions which are actually caused by those states, because we're actually attached, aren't we? We're attached to our greeds, and we're attached to our delusions, and we're attached to our aversions, because we can always give ourselves good narrative stories, why we like something, why we dislike something, and why I'm not in the least bit interested. We can always give ourselves really, really good narrative stories for all of those things. And so, really, the freedom from this is what the Buddha delineates or uses a word that actually has entered into the English language, certainly a Sanskrit form anyway, nirvana. That's the opposite. Nirvana indicates freedom. It means the freedom or the blowing out of the fires of greed, hatred and delusion. Now, in some traditions, and this is personally the way I like to see, that this nirvana is here right now. You you can either be living a nirvanic or nibbanic state now, healed, in other words, or you can be just going through your samsaric machinations, yet again, just going through the same old stuff. And that is what the Buddha is saying. You can be in this nibbanic state now. To finish off on a quote, and then perhaps the metasutta, just to really ultimately finish this session. Uh, to finish off on a quote, it's very much what T.S. Eliot says in the Four Quartets. I can't remember it exactly, so this is a little bit of a paraphrase. But at the end of all our journeyings is to return to the same place and know it for the first time. That is really what's being indicated in the Buddha's journey. It's not going to some metaphysical heaven. It's not going to some other place. It's to be here now, wholly human and healed in this time, now. Not to be in some other delusory, idealised state, but to actually be here, to be. And one of the roots for that is kindness. Let me just finish off with the Metta Sutta. Because this is coming from one of the most ancient parts of the Pali Canon, um, probably something very close to what the Buddha said. In countries like Sri Lanka, this takes the place of the Lord's Prayer in the morning, at assembly. All the children say this every morning when they go to school, which is um, this discourse on loving kindness. He who is skilled in welfare, who wishes to attain that calm state, nirvana, should act thus. He should be able, upright, perfectly upright, of noble speech, gentle and humble, contented, easily supported with few duties, of light livelihood, with senses calmed, 
discreet, not impudent, not greedily attached to begging from families. Remember, this was aimed at monks. He should not pursue the slightest thing for which otherwise men might censure him. May all beings be happy and secure. May their hearts be wholesome and happy-minded. Whether living being, whatever living beings there be, feeble or strong, tall, stout or medium, short, small or large, without exception, seen or unseen, those dwelling far or near, those who are born or those who are about to be born, may all beings be happy-minded. Let none deceive another, nor despise any person whatsoever in any place whatsoever. Let him not wish any harm to another out of anger or ill will. And just as a mother would protect her only child at the risk of her own life, even so let him cultivate a boundless heart towards all beings. Let his thoughts of boundless love pervade the whole world, above, below and across, without any obstruction, without any hatred and without any enmity. Whether he stands, walks, sits, lies down, as long as he is awake, he should develop this mindfulness. This, they say, is the noblest way of living here. Not falling into wrong views, being virtuous and endowed with insight, and by discarding attachment to sense desires, never again shall such a one be reborn. Okay. Right, so I'll open it up to some, I don't know, discussion, comments, or questions, whatever you decide. <laughs> yeah. And the, I'd like you to say something about the, the question of self and other in terms of suffering. Say, I mean, for, for example, if some, this is what I really struggle with, somebody else behaves in a way that's difficult for me. Mm. And to get a balance between not blaming self, not blaming myself, but not blaming the other. So, how to dilemma? Well, well, for start off, not blaming oneself is <coughs> if one, for example, can come into a fundamentally friendly relationship with your own sense of self, with, as I say, all of the foibles that we possess. You know, the fact that sometimes we do do harm to others. Um, unwittingly in many cases not, not actually fully consciously we do harm to others but there's no good in a way of beating ourselves up about it no, no point in making our lives more miserable because of that all one can do out of this sense of friendliness in a sense is opt to do better in other words to make that movement into being better in the world now in, in traditional cultures I'll just say this, in traditional cultures although I said they don't have a sense of guilt they have shame you can feel ashamed if you detect that you've actually done something wrong but shame unlike guilt is not something we carry around with us, you can feel it instantaneously and make the resolve to be better without necessarily having to carry any baggage with you the thing I would say about others not blaming others as well is actually most people's behaviour even when it is bad to you I often put this in a way which says actually really there's nothing personal about it often um, because in a way people and ourselves are often just acting out of causes and conditions and sometimes you just happen to be in the way <laughs> in, the, in, acting, in the acting out process and so often when you see somebody acting badly towards you, um, there is actually no reason necessarily to feel got at. There's no necessar- not necessarily any reason to feel that you're to blame. You're just a condition that's there in many ways for this acting out process. Because all of us, in a way, are acting out dispositions, acting out habits um, and you can just be the immediate cause for that, that's all. And so in a way, it's not really personal. And I don't know if you've ever seen this in yourself, sometimes when you get annoyed at somebody, and you realise actually it's not the person you're getting annoyed at, but just life <laughs> in general. And they just become the sort of immediate target for the frustration with it. 
Um, so in a way, in, in developing friendliness towards ourselves, we can often extend it towards others when they are going through that acting out process. And you don't have to feel that I'm getting angry because of it or taking on the burden of what's being directed at me. That, I think, is really what the Buddha is saying. By developing friendliness, empathy, compassion, we can make that movement where it doesn't seem quite so personal and quite so painful. Yeah. I'm not saying it's easy. Please don't, please don't um, think that anything I'm saying here is easy because we are so conditioned and others are so conditioned. We are so conditioned to take it on ourselves in particular ways. I'm to blame or I shall get angry because they're getting angry at me. We're having to work with quite deep conditioned stuff. Um, hence the reason for meditation, because meditation is a, a place sometimes, what I call a controlled experiment in many ways, where you can see some of this stuff arising. And if you can start to let it go in your meditation process without being caught up in it, you might stand much more of a chance in ordinary life. Yeah. And if you can develop this feelings of Meta, and let's, let's bear in mind when we're going to go through this process for the rest of the week of developing meta towards ourselves and towards others. In a way, it's slightly artificial. Yeah. Slightly artificial. You haven't got your enemy standing in front of you. <laughs> you know, when you're developing it, what you're trying to do is develop this nice sense of meta. But actually, in a way, we're training ourselves. We're going through a process of training. We're going through a controlled experiment. But actually, when we get into a situation where we encounter that person, then we might not, might not, I'm not saying absolutely that we'll change, but we might not automatically come into the same normal condition that we often find ourselves in if we hadn't gone through that process. Yeah. So that's kind of, it's a response again. Please don't think that these are answers, because there's many different ways of coming at these things. Snake, you mentioned the Buddha was the first psychologist. Mm-hmm. And then why hasn't Western psychology taken over more of the teachings? <laughs> because Western psychology is a fairly new discipline and it's often seized to steer itself clear of any so-called religion. Uh, but interestingly enough, actually, being slightly more serious about it, I mean, interestingly, the greatest dialogue really is becoming between certain areas of psychology and psychotherapy with Buddhists thought and practice some of the practices some of you might know this anyway some of the practices are entering into mainstream Um, they're being used in areas such as pain control John Kabat-Zinn for example who was here not so long ago I think um, actually teaches in the States a way of dealing with chronic pain by using mindfulness training that whole procedure of mindfulness training decontextualized out of its Buddhist context is also being used in some forms of mental health work in Britain at the moment. It's just starting to find it's, it's getting its toehold in to these, into these areas. Um, the big problem, of course, with the reason why it hasn't entered into what I call mainstream cognitive psychology is because Buddhist psychology, in a way, is introspective. You've got to go through the process. Yeah, you, in other words really to confirm what the Buddha is saying you've got to do the meditation practice you've got to go into the whole experience of it whereas what of course psychologists in the West like to do is like to measure things yeah. uh, and they don't want to go through the hard work of actually having to do anything like that um, and I think that's the big difference between the two one is a, a rational cognitive measurable you know double-blind sample-type scientific procedure, whereas Buddhist practice is very much about experience. Very, very much about it. Um, I know, certainly in the university, I know cognitive psychologists who have become very interested in Buddhist thought, uh, but they're still on the outside. They're still on the outside. They're considered to be slightly weird uh, within their departments. (laughs) But it is happening. It'll It'll take a while. But I still think the biggest dialogue actually is between that. Probably that and philosophy in the West at the present time. Yeah, I think there is a theory that it's suited to the quiet mind of the East. <laughs> yes. And our, our restless grasping won't grasp it. Mm. Well, I think it's, it's, it's the main thing. We, I think you see this all throughout what's happening in, say, Britain at the moment. 
Everything has to be quantifiable, measurable. Um, and what we're talking about in terms of Buddhist practice is quality, not quantity. You know, it's the quality of life. You know, that those fundamental changes that can be affected through going through the sometimes difficult procedure of practicing, of sitting for quite long periods of time, doing retreats and all this stuff. And it can't be quantified in the same way that we can quantify it you know, in, in a lot of mainstream science. Um, so I think those are the big differences between the two. But I would actually qualify that statement as well. I mean, when I said the Buddha is the first psychologist, he's really the first ethical psychologist as well, because his interest is not just in the workings of the mind, it's how one becomes a better person by understanding the workings of the mind. Yeah. And so when we look at the psychology, for example, it's laid out, there's a whole tract big chunk of what's known as the Tapitaka, which is actually the main part of the canon, which is known as the Abhidhamma. And the Abhidhamma really deals with all of Buddhist psychology, but it's all laid out in ethical fashion. So it will list out all the unwholesome states of mind and all of the wholesome states of mind um, that you can come across. Also how they combine and mix and all sorts of things. It's very complex. Um, But the main reason for it is is in a sense it's a manual or guide to Vipassana meditation so that one can identify what's arising in the mind and see the very ways in which they kind of mutate in the mind as well. So you've got a huge number of combinations that you can deal with. 121 forms of consciousness, 82 different dhammas, (laughs) all the ways that arise and pass away. But that's, that's another story. I won't get into that one. <laughs> yeah, we're all remarkably silent on this. Yeah. Could you briefly comment? There's a statement you made about, about being in a state of nirvana all the time. Could you just briefly comment on where choice comes into how we are, both in a tree setting and then when we go back out into the world? Choice is enormous. We don't seem to have any choice. You know, we find certain situations in which we plan to do all this stuff. Well, I mean, within the Buddhist text, the Buddha makes it quite clear that actually what is involved is choice. It's what he could. There's a, a word for a technical word in Pali, which is chetana, which actually means volition. That in each situation, in a sense, if we become clear enough, and this is why we try to aim at clarity. In our confused, unclear state, we don't have choice. But if we develop practices and engage in practices which are aimed at developing some form of clarity, and one of the claims I'm making for this whole week is actually engaging in kind of behavior towards ourselves and others, will also, in a sense, clarify things a lot, then choices become apparent to us as we move through life. So Chaitanya is really the essence of Buddhist practice, is beginning to identify and then make the right choice. So instead of going down the road of habit, that I make the choice for breaking that habit, moving into complete and fresh terrain. And and this is within all traditions, really. Um, It's there, some of you might notice, it's there within the Tibetan tradition. Um, They call it bardo which is actually the word which is usually used to refer to the state between birth and you know, between death and birth. And it actually means in Tibetan an in-between state. But it's a state wherein make, one makes a choice. And what's made clear about this in Tibetan text is actually it's not just about the, the death-birth process. It's actually about moment to moment. Because if you get clear enough about this moment and the movement into the next moment then you either have a choice of going into the habit in the next moment or moving into something fresh, letting go of the habit. So really, in a way, what you're saying is choice is essential, but there has to be, obviously, practices which we engage in which aim at the clarification to allow us to have that choice. And that's what we're really engaging in a lot of meditative practice, getting calmness of mind, insight, to enable us to really, in a way, develop that chetana, that volitional tendency that we have with us. So ultimately we could opt for Nibbana, (laughs) 
as long as you have actually dropped all the stuff away in your choices that you've made. So again, I hope it's kind of responded to your question. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. Um, thank you. Yeah. I'm really enjoying this. Um, so this is a sort of meta question. I work as a doctor, and with insight, I've seen that a lot of the loving kindness is actually control, and a lot of the giving is actually control and not wanting to be in the unknown. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you have anything to say on that. Yeah, I'll answer briefly tonight, but this is something I will touch on, because in a sense, again, this is the essence of the difference, I think, between the Buddhist understanding of things like compassion and the way they're often seen in the West. A lot of these words, unfortunately, we're stuck with. Um, loving kindness, empathy, compassion. But they don't actually really mean that in the original languages, which is so frustrating. Um, I mean, give you a word, such a word as empathy. I think this all, which I'm translating as empathy. The word in Pali is usually anakampa, or anakrosha in Sanskrit. And the word literally means to tremble with. Uh, and actually, its etymological meaning is even more profound. It means to cry out at the crying out of another. You know? And that gets beyond the, the control. You know, it's a real movement into totally, in a sense, vibrating with the other person and being with them completely. Um, and I don't think you get that with the word empathy. Um, compassion is another interesting one. The dispensation of compassion is not a giving out. It's not a kind of, I'll give you my compassion no matter what. <laughs> um, somebody described it very well, you know, that a lot of this compassion is kind of, you knock somebody down into the gutter and then you gush all over them and try to pick them up again. You know, and it's, I know it's a bit unfair, but it's in a way a kind of quite an evocative image because it's kind of, you know, this person is down on their knees and you're kind of just giving it to them. Whereas actually compassion, karuna, actually, which is the Sanskrit Pali word for it, karuna, um, means to turn outwards and see another. To really see another. And so it means a movement away from self. And I think it's a wonderful, kind of almost a metaphor of how we could actually, either we are turned inwards, self-obsessed, and even my compassion is tainted by that self-obsession of, you say, control and power. Or I'm completely out into the open with the other. Yeah. Um, and I'll talk a m- bit more about that as we go through the week. But they do have very different connotations in the original languages. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.